Father in heaven, we see in the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we see what a great miracle it was that you fulfilled your promises to David, that you preserved his, his line so that we could have a Messiah. We appreciate that so much that you have delivered us through our true King, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us to understand the depths that you have for us in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight we have 2 Kings. Last week we had 1 Kings. And we'll go through, um, again, a lot of the things that we went through as far as Elijah and Elisha, because that's common to both books. Elijah and Elisha are introduced in 1 Kings, and they carry on over into the first part of 2 Kings. You've seen this before. This is just telling you that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings were, used to be all part of one big book. Then it was divided into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and, and we, now we have have them as four different books, four separate books. Flight, the facts. Traditionally, the prophet Jeremiah, who was alive to see the siege and fall of Jerusalem is said to have written Kings, but the text itself does not tell us who the author was. The book is thought to have been written sometime between 562 and 536 B.C. It had to be written before 536 B.C., it is thought, because there's no mention of the return of Israel to the land. And by 536, that began to happen. The landmarks, the division detailed the division detailed in 1 Kings bottoms out in 2 Kings with the collapse of the two struggling kingdoms. Israel, failed by godless leadership, was conquered by enemies and brought into captivity. The surviving kingdom Judah lasted another 136 years before falling to Babylon. Itinerary, we have the struggling kingdoms in chapters 1 through 17 and the surviving kingdom in chapters 18 through 25. Gospel, when you read of the many bad rulers and few good ones in 2 Kings, keep in mind that more was going on than just issues of politics and leadership. Satan's goal was to terminate the messianic line, God's long-standing plan to buy his people back from sin's grip was at stake in the midst of the decline of the nation. So that's the deeper thing that's going on here. History, during this period of time, more than two dozen kings ruled Judah and Israel. I'm just talking about second kings now. From the reign of Ahaziah to the fall of the southern kingdom and Judah's captivity in Babylon, beginning in 586 B.C. Travel tips. The book shows what happens when individuals and nations depend on their own sense of what's right and wrong instead of God's. Israel and Judah's struggles should encourage us to draw closer to God. They show us that he is there through good times and bad, even as we fight through trials and deal with the consequences of our mistakes. Also, a goodly mentor can help guide you toward God in evil times, but you still have to develop your own relationship with God. One of the few godly kings during this time was Jehoash, 
who did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. So as long as he had a mentor, he did great. But after Jehoiada died, Jehoash began to listen to and lean on other leaders who led him into idolatry. So it's good to have a good mentor, but you also need to develop your own relationship with God. The divided kingdom. So we have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. 20 kings in each. But the difference is that in the northern kingdom, there were nine different dynasties. Whereas in the southern kingdom, there was one dynasty, David's dynasty, David's line. The northern kingdom experienced a 200-year history before destruction. And the southern kingdom stayed around longer. They had about a 350-year history before destruction. When I say 200 years and 350 years, I'm not giving you exact numbers. This is just uh, round numbers of what they were. So the, the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC to the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom fell in 586 BC to the Babylonians. With regard to the number of kings in Israel, the northern kingdom, some sources will say 19, some will say 20. Well, how can that be? Well, there was a man named Tibni, and he was contending for the, the throne of, of Israel against a man named uh, Omri, and eventually Omri won out. So do we include Tibni or not? That's why you see the difference between 19 and 20. Uh, the names of the kings can be confusing. The, the very first king of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, was Jeroboam. But there was another king later on of, Ju of the northern kingdom, Israel, who was also named Jeroboam. So we usually distinguish between them by referring to them as Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. And sometimes there are, there's a king in Judah who has the same name as a king in Israel. Uh, both, Judah, both Judah and Israel had a king, Jehoram. Um, Joash was a king in Judah, and Jehoash was a king in Israel, and sometimes Jehoash is called Joash. So it's confusing. And sometimes a king is known by different names. Isaiah is also known as Azariah. So it, it may, might seem like there are two different people when they, when they really have the same name. So as far as the... I was trying to determine a chronology of this period. If you think it was difficult to create a Bible chronology up to this point, you ain't seen nothing until we get to First and Second Kings. <laughs> it gets really complicated. So even though we have synchronisms, we have synchronisms to follow, follow this formula. In the X year of the reign of so-and-so of Israel, so-and-so became king of Judah and he reigned Y years. And, and the reverse is true also. In the X year of the reign of so-and-so king of, of Judah, so-and-so became king of Israel and he reigned Y years. So we have these, these synchronisms and you might think, well, boy, this, this is a piece of cake. That really nails it down. That makes it easy, but not so much. Because we all, in addition to these synchronisms, we also have a, a length of reign notice. And so-and-so reigned X years. And so, so sometimes you will come across what seems to be contradictory information. 
one place indicates that the king reigned this many years, and another place indicates that he reigned a different number of years. And so it is, it is confusing, it is complicated. When it comes to this very complex period of, of Israel's history, we owe a great deal to a man named Edwin Thiel. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce him, it's Thiel or Thiele. But he spent a great deal of time and effort studying this, this period of, of the divided monarchy, the kings of Israel and Judah. And he discovered some things that really help us to understand the, the complexities of this, of this time period. Uh, this book was originally published in 1951. It was issued again in 1965 and again in 1983. Edwin Thiel lived into his 90s, so he had uh, quite a lengthy reign too, you might say. So the, the important things that, that Thiel discovered as he studied this period and why it's so complex and so confusing, he, he discovered by studying history some three very important things. First of all, he, he learned the difference between Nisan dating, that was used in Israel, versus Tishri dating, used in Judah. So in other words, the two kingdoms began their years at different points in time. They had the same sequence of months, but they began their years at different times. So Nisan dating begins in the spring, and Tishri dating begins in the fall. So that makes a difference. And when one kingdom was looking at the other kingdom, they didn't use the dating system that that kingdom used, they used the dating system that they used. So that's why you, you come up with different numbers. That's one of the reasons, anyway. Uh, the, the way I explain it to people, it, it's kind of like the calendar year versus the fiscal year. In other words, the calendar year begins in January, on January 1, but Minnesota's, the state of Minnesota's fiscal year begins on July 1st, and the, the federal government's fiscal year begins on October 1st. So that there's di different years with the, the same sequence of months where they begin at different points in the year. Another thing that Thiel discovered was the difference between accession year versus non-accession year. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. Um, and, and it gets even more confusing because Judah didn't consistently use the accession year all the way through their history. There, there were some times when they switched to the non-accession year. <laughs> and the same with Israel. They switched sometimes from the non-accession year to the accession year. And then the third thing is periods of co-regency. So in the situation where one king is getting old and he's not able to carry out all of his duties, he will reign jointly with his son. So there's this period of co-regency, this period of overlap. Well, who do you, who do you attribute those years to? Are they, do they belong to the, to the old king or the new king or both? Or how, how do you uh, apportion those years? So there are some periods of co-regency in, in the kings. Now, I said I'll explain what uh, accession year and, and non-accession year means. So let's say that we have a hypo hypothetical king and his son. So the regnal year of King A, of King A, let's call him. So let's say that in, the, in his 12th year, he dies partway through his 12th year. So 
who do you attribute that year to? Is that his, part of his reign or is that part of his son's reign? Well, using, using the accession year, you don't start counting the reign of the son until the first full calendar year. So that you don't count that accession year, that, that year that he began to rule, began to reign. So that's the accession year method. The non-accession year method would count that partial year as his first year of reign. So that makes a difference too. So you can see that it's not, it's not so simple as, you know, this king ruled this number of years and then this king ruled this number of years. There's a lot of, a lot of complexities in there. The divided kingdoms, this is basically what Israel was like during this period of the divided monarchy. So Israel uh, possessed not only this portion here, but also this portion east of the, of the Jordan River, Gilead. But you notice they didn't extend as far up into Syria as they did during Solomon's reign. And Judah was just this portion down here. Judah and Benjamin became part of Judah. Um, and Judah didn't have as much clout as they did before. They, they weren't able to maintain control over Edom as they had during David and, and Solomon. And they weren't able to keep control of the Philistines either. Some changes that took place in Jerusalem during this period of time. As we look at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we see the, the developing history of, of Jerusalem. Remember that when David first conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital, <clears throat> Jerusalem was just this tiny finger of land on the southern ridge here. Solomon expanded it to the north where he built his his palace and the temple. And then during the subsequent kings, uh, Jerusalem expanded out to the west here. And here's another picture of Israel. So the, the Kidron Valley is a steep valley right here. And that's why Jerusalem never did expand to the east. Expanded in the other directions, but not to the east. And over here, there's the Hinnom Valley which is west of Jerusalem, but then it curves around south of Jerusalem and joins up with the Kidron Valley. And the Hinnom Valley is that valley that became known as Gehenna in the New Testament. One of the main um, changes in the infrastructure, you might say, of Jerusalem at this, during this time period, the, the Gihon Spring was, was Jerusalem's water source here, and King Hezekiah, excavated a tunnel to bring water down to the, to the pool of Ceylon. And that tunnel still exists today. And if you go to Israel, you can, you can walk through the tunnel. These are the, the steps leading down to the tunnel. And the tunnel varies in, in terms of width and height as you go through it. It was quite a, an engineering feat because they started at both ends and somehow they met in the middle. So it's quite an engineering feat because uh, when you're digging underground, it's hard to tell what direction you're going. But it was excavated right through the rock. It's about a third of a mile long. 
uh, in the dry season, it's about the water in the tunnel is about knee deep. And in the rainy season, it's about waist deep. Besides the, the kings in the books of Kings, there are prophets as well. And we'll talk, I'll talk more about these when we get to the prophets. But there were prophets to the northern kingdom, and there were also prophets to the southern kingdom. And one of the things that we note in First and Second Kings is the difference between writing prophets and non-writing prophets. And all that means is that prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're writing prophets. They wrote books that we have in the Bible. Whereas Elijah and Elisha are non-writing prophets. We read about the stories of Elijah and Elisha, but as far as we know, they didn't write any books. They certainly didn't write any books that have become part of our canon of Scripture. So, there are prophets to the northern kingdom and prophets to the southern kingdom. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Um, Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom, even though he was a southerner. He was from the south, but he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And uh, over in the, the list on the right side there to the southern kingdom, Micah had a message from God to both kingdoms. So he, he prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah and to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel as well. Now, not all of the prophets are listed here because some of the prophets were prophets to the exile. And they come along later. And also prophets uh, when Israel was returning. So we'll, we'll talk more about those when we get to the prophets. Here is a, a map of the various prophets, either where they were from or where they did most of their prophesying. So you can see that Elijah is up here. This is where he was born at Tishbe. When, uh, Brian, when you were young, did your family have um, Passover seders? You remember that song about Elijah that they sing at the Passover table? Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi. Uh, that's saying Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite. He's from Tishbe. <laughs> so and and then his his person who was his assistant, Elisha. He's from over here west of the Jordan, but he's not too far from Tishba, where Elijah came from. Jonah was up here in, in the region of Galilee. So when the Pharisees in the New Testament say that, well, no prophet comes from Galilee, well, yeah, they do. I mean, Jonah, that's where Jonah came from. There are some uh, non-writing prophets besides Elijah and Elisha. There are people like Ahijah and Jehu. But they play very minor roles in the book of First and Second Kings. They're only involved in one incident. So uh, I didn't list them in the, in the listing of the prophets, even though they were prophets of God. And then there are other prophets down here in Judah. And Jeremiah is a, a big one. He, he's from a town close to Jerusalem. Amos down here from Tekoa. But I remember I told you that Amos, even though he was a southerner, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And there we start learning about Elijah. He, he was up here where he had his uh, 
confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then he went to Jezreel, and then Jezebel threatened to kill him, so he hightailed it out of there and headed for Mount Sinai. This is um, another map of the happenings of Elijah's life. His birthplace was Tishri, and uh, this the brook Kareth, where the ravens fed him, that was really not too far from where he grew up. That was where the ravens fed him. He, he cared for a, a widow. He performed a miracle of multiplying her oil and her, her wheat up here in Zarephath, outside of, outside of Israel, up here in the Phoenician area. And he eventually raised her son from the dead. He had his contest with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. He prophesied that Ahaziah would die, and of course he did. He would be, his uh, dynasty would be taken away. Uh, this is where he went down to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And this right, right here is where he was crossing the Jordan River, and he was taken up by a whirlwind. There's another map of the, of the activities of both Elijah and Elisha. So some of the miracles that Elisha did, he, he um, purified a spring at Jericho where the water was bad. He cleansed Naaman of leprosy. He prophesied the doom of, of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And here, we'll talk more about this later. At Shunem, he raised a, a woman's son from the dead. That's significant for the New Testament. Here he purified a poisoned pot of stew. There's another picture of Elijah, map of Elijah and Elisha. So this is, once again, where he headed down south towards Sinai. Here's a map of Elijah. So this is where he was fed by ravens. Up here is where he performed that miracle with the widow's jar of oil. This is where he had his confrontation on Mount Carmel. Then he headed down to Sinai. Uh, number five here is where he uh, confronted Ahab, after, after the death of Naboth, remember the incident of Naboth's vineyard where Jezebel cooked up the scheme to have Naboth killed so they could take his vineyard away. I mentioned that uh, Elisha was born west, just west of the uh, Jordan River. He healed a, spring, healed a spring in Jericho where the water was bad. Uh, up here at um, see number three, uh, do you remember the incident about the she-bear where, where they, um, the youth uh, taunted him about calling him, you bald head, you bald head, and uh, two she-bears came out of the woods and 
and took care of them. <laughs> and Shunem, once again, we'll talk about that, where he raised the woman's son from the dead. Uh, over here in, uh, in Dothan is where um, the incident where he, he was surrounded by armies, by hostile armies, and his servant was getting worried, and, and um, Elisha prayed that God would open his eyes so he could see that the, all of the fiery horses and chariots that were protecting them, and there were more people with them than with their enemies. And uh, he, he actually sent um, another prophet up to anoint Jehu as the new king of Israel. So when, when Elijah was so discouraged and depressed, God told him to anoint new, a new generation of political leaders. And so Elijah prophesied that they, that would happen. But Elisha, his successor, was the one who actually carried that out. I wanted to show you some parallels between Moses and Elijah. Just as Moses was the forerunner of Joshua, who would eventually lead Israel into the Promised Land, so Elijah was the forerunner of Elisha, who obtained a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. So these two people are the forerunners, Moses and Elijah. And it's interesting that the two people who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ were the two forerunners, Moses and Elijah. So here are some parallels between Moses and Elijah. Moses kills an Egyptian. Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. Then Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses. Jezebel seeks to kill Elijah. Moses flees for his life to Midian. Elijah flees for his life to Horeb or, or Sinai. Moses comes to a bush. Elijah comes to a broom tree. Moses and God dialogue by debate. And Elijah does that same thing. Elijah and God dialogue by debate. So if Moses and Elijah are the two forerunners, then Joshua and Elisha are types of Christ. And there are a number of, of parallels between Jesus and Elisha. Both their names contain the verb save or the noun salvation. Elisha receives Elijah's spirit by the Jordan. Jesus receives the spirit in his baptism by the Jordan. Unlike Elijah or John the Baptist, Elisha and Jesus dress like everybody else and are quite at home in the midst of crowds. Both Elijah and John the Baptist, the forerunners, they dressed very distinctively different from the general society, and they lived off in the wilderness. At one point, um, somebody reported to King Ahab that they had seen somebody that they thought was Elijah, and King Ahab says, well, how is he dressed? What did he look like? And the guy explains what he, what he saw, and, and Ahab says, yeah, that's Elijah. <laughs> so he, he was identified by his distinctive dress. 
Elisha and Jesus can see and hear what is going on elsewhere. So some examples of that, of, of Elisha being able to see or hear what is happening somewhere else. You remember in the incident where Elisha healed uh, Naaman, this foreign general, from his leprosy. And Elisha's servant Gehazi uh, went and lied to Naaman and told him that, yeah, Elisha would really like some payment for his services. Even though Elisha wasn't there, he knew all about it. He knew what had happened. He knew that his servant had lied to uh, Naaman. He could hear what um, the king of Aram was saying even in his bedroom. He, he knew what, what was being said. So the, the, the king thought that, that there must be a mole in here. There's somebody that knows that's reporting to Elisha what I'm saying. No, Elisha just knew it. And Elisha knew that in, in chapter 6 that uh, someone had been sent to kill him even though he hadn't been there and hadn't heard about it, he, was, he knew about this already. Likewise, Jesus knew things that were happening at a distance. Remember when the, when the disciples went and told Nathaniel that they had found the Messiah, even though Jesus wasn't there, he already knew all about it when they came to tell him about it. And in the incident with the triumphal entry, he knew all about the donkey and who owned the donkey and what he would say, even though he wasn't there and didn't talk to the person. And then with the Passover, when they, when they prepared the upper room, he already knew all about the, the upper room and the owner of the upper room, and he knew that the owner would allow them to use the upper room, even though he had no contact with the person. Uh, similarity between the miracles of Jesus and Elisha. Elisha's cleansing of Naaman's leprosy and Jesus' cleansing of lepers, especially the ten lepers. Elisha's feeding a large multitude and Jesus' multiplication of the loaves. So there was an incident where Elisha fed a large multitude even though he had a small amount of food. And his servant came to him and said, well, how can we feed all of these people with just this little bit of food? The very same thing that the disciple Andrew said to Jesus, how can we feed all of these people with this small amount of food? So there's that similarity. And then Elisha's resuscitation of the son of a woman from Shunem and Jesus' resuscitation of the son of a widow of Nain. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that later. Right now. <laughs> so this is a map. And I'll point out what I want you to look at here. So this is Mount Carmel where... Elijah had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Here's Megiddo, Armageddo, Armageddon, where the final the armies will be gathered for the final battle in Revelation. This is the, the Jezreel Valley here. Nazareth is located right here. But what I want to direct your attention to is this hill right here called Hill of Moreh. On the North side of the hill, there is a village in New Testament times called Nain. And in the south side of that very same hill, there's an Old Testament village called Shunem. And I'll show you the connection between them. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. 
She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. And the woman was barren. So he said to his servant, uh, he asked, her, asked what she needed and, and the servant told him that she was barren. So he, he said to the woman, he prophesied, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. The woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. But when the child was grown, a, a tragic incident happened. When the child was grown, he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. So they summoned Elisha. Elisha came. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So uh, he, Elisha, entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And the lad opened his eyes. So he called her. And when she came in to him, he said, take up your son. In the New Testament, in the book of Luke, we read that soon afterward he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So here's that, that hill of Moreh today. Over here you see the, the modern village of Nain. Here's another picture from the, from the north. There's Nain, there's the hill. Here's another picture of Nain, and just over that hill was the Old Testament village of Shunem. So, these people of Nain, no doubt they had heard over and over again of the great miracle that had happened there in the days of Elisha. But there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Now Jesus comes along and performs that same miracle at that same location. So this is why it's so helpful to, to become familiar with, with the geography of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because many times it's, it's not only significant what Jesus said and what he did, but it's even significant where he said it and where he did it. So the, the, the people of Nain greatly marveled at this because this great miracle had been performed, just like the one that had happened so many centuries ago. Now, this is an artist's depiction of the famous incident about the chariot, the fiery horses and chariot that separated between Elijah and Elisha. You've probably heard the, the spiritual about Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Well, th this is another example of how read closely, read carefully. Maybe it doesn't say quite what you think it said. <laughs> because when it's describing this in Second Kings, it says, And as they, Elijah and Elisha, still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. 
So the text doesn't say that Elijah rode in the chariot. The, the fiery chariot separated between Elijah and Elisha, but Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind, not a chariot. So. Now some of the stories of, of the kings in Second Kings. I won't have time to go through all of the stories, but I'll cover some of the more interesting ones. There was one queen, who, one woman who ruled over Judah. She's the only woman of, of either kingdom. Um, her name was Athaliah, and she turned out to be very wicked. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. In other words, she was killing her own grandsons. How would you like to have a grandma like that? She was attempting to wipe out the Davidic line. So you can see how serious this was. If the Davidic line was wiped out, we wouldn't have a savior. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. So Athaliah did come very close to exterminating this Davidic line. But there was a a very young child named Joash that was hidden away. Now, Athaliah was a very wicked woman. A very, you can see that by the fact that she was willing to kill her own grandsons. But actually, that's not so surprising because she was a daughter of Jezebel, the wicked queen in the north. So she was just... Uh, acting up to her ancestry. Now, this is interesting. The, the child Joash becomes king. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent, Jehoiada is the priest, sent and brought the captains of the Kerites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. So he showed them that there was a surviving member of David's line. And then they went on to execute Athaliah and to coronate uh, the child Joash as king. But this, notice this, this uh, pattern of six and then a seventh. The six-seven pattern. It's quite common in, in scripture, like there were six days of creation followed by a seventh day of rest. And then in the book of Proverbs, it says, six things Yahweh hates, seven are an abomination to him. So there's this pattern of six and then the seventh. Also, there is a, an ark of deliverance involved. In Exodus 2, deliverance for the very young child Moses is in one kind of an ark. In 2 Kings 11, deliverance for the very young child Joram is in the house of the Lord close to another kind of ark. So there's, there's this pattern of the ark of deliverance. 
And this, this will really surprise you. The meaning of Athaliah's name. How far Athaliah lives beneath her name. Athaliah means Yahweh is exalted, or Yahweh is upright, or Yahweh has declared his eminence. Here is a case where the name most definitely does not reflect the character or the moral value of the one who bears the name. Some of the other stories about the kings in, in the book of 2 Kings. After King Ahab died, Moab and Edom revolted. First, Moab revolted because they had been required for many years to pay tribute since the time of David, to pay tribute to Israel. And as soon as Ahab died, they saw their chance to, to revolt. Now, Israel and Judah and Edom, who was still under the control of Judah at that time, uh, tried to subdue Moab over here. Here's Israel, Judah, Edom. They, they tried to subdue Moab, but they weren't successful in doing that. And then a few years later, Edom rebelled against Judah. So this area in between Edom and Judah was often disputed between those two kingdoms. Elijah prophesied that Jehu would become the king of Israel. So he was predicting that one dynasty would end and a new dynasty would begin. Elisha was the one who carried out those prophecies because he sent another prophet to anoint Jehu as the king. And as soon as that happened up here in remote Gilead on the east side of the Jordan, then Jehu started heading for Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, to take over as its king. Both Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, opposed him. They came up to fight him, but he ended up killing both of them. So a new dynasty took over. Remember that there were nine different dynasties over Israel, the northern kingdom. And let's just say that um, the change from one dynasty to the next was not a peaceful transition. Usually there was a assassination or warfare or some such thing when one dynasty ended and a new dynasty took over. So remember that during the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel extended quite a ways up here in Syria, but that no longer was the case during the divided kingdom. And the king of Syria, Hazael, came down and he took away this portion of Israel east of the Jordan River, Gilead. He also went clear down here and took Gath. Judah had taken Gath, the Philistine city, but he took it away from Judah. And the king of Judah, Jehoash, gave him some treasures from the temple to pay him off, to get him to not attack Jerusalem. So he gave up some treasures from the temple of the Lord to buy off as king of Syria. 
During this period of time, sometimes Judah and Israel would be allies against a, a foreign power, and sometimes they would fight each other. Sometimes they were enemies. This is a case where they were, were allies. Uh, Azariah who was the king of, of Judah at the time, and Jeroboam II was king of Israel. And they had formed a, an alliance against Syria. Oh, excuse me, against Assyria. Um, do you know the difference between Syria and Assyria? They're, they're two different entities. Syria is a, a smaller kingdom. Assyria it became a vast empire. So Syria is close to Israel, right up to the northeast there. But Assyria is further over into the Fertile Crescent. So, once again, when, um, when Israel and Judah revolted, uh, they, they resurged, they, they uh, re-acqu- reacquired some of the land that they had lost. So Israel acquired this land up in Syria. And Judah attacked the Philistines. And, and also they, they reacquired a lot down here at the, at the Red Sea, which had been taken from them by Edom. But as I said, sometimes Israel and Judah were allies, and sometimes they were fighting each other. Israel and Syria and Edom and even the Philistines, maybe, formed an alliance against this expanding empire of Assyria. And they wanted Judah to be part of that alliance, to participate in it. Judah refused to do so, so what these nations did, Assyria, or excuse me, Israel and Syria and Edom and even the Philistines, they all attacked Judah. So Judah was getting it from all sides there. Now I want to tell you about this incident where a lost book was found. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to the to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Both ancient authorities, such as rabbinic sources and Jerome and modern commentators, believe that this lost book that was found was our book of Deuteronomy, the book that appears in our Bibles as Deuteronomy. So how do we know that that is the case? How do we know that this lost book was the book of Deuteronomy and not some other book of the Torah or perhaps even the entire book of the Torah. Well, there are some good reasons for thinking that it was the book of Deuteronomy. The expression, the book of the law, is not found anywhere in Genesis through Numbers, but it does appear throughout Deuteronomy. For example, Deuteronomy 28.61, 
we find that expression, the book of the law. Also, the community celebration of Passover in Jerusalem, as opposed to the household Passover sacrifice of Exodus 12, reflects Deuteronomy's teaching on Passover, a festival to be observed at the place that the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. So from the Exodus and throughout the the wandering in the wilderness, Passover was a, was a household celebration. But when Israel came into the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy instructed that the Passover was to be centered at, at the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God placed his name. And so this, this Passover that they celebrate in Israel during the, the uh, kings, reflects that, that, Deuteron- that teaching in Deuteronomy. Many of the paganistic items that Josiah had removed, Josiah was the, was the king at that time, that, he had re- that Josiah had removed or destroyed are particularly condemned in Deuteronomy. The vessels for and the image of Asherah, that's mentioned in Deuteronomy, and that's one of the things that Josiah destroyed the pillars, the high places. That's another thing that Josiah destroyed. Many, many of the kings of Judah, even the, the righteous ones, the good kings, it is said that, but they didn't destroy the high places. The, the high places were still, were still allowed to go on. But Josiah took, made the effort to destroy them. And he uh, polluted them by, by burning human bones on them so that they were no longer of any use. If the discovered book was the entire Torah, it would have been a very long scroll and it would have been a strenuous exercise for the prophetess Huldah to read it before making her evaluation. So they took, to this, they took this book to the prophetess Huldah and asked for her guidance on the matter. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbar and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess. And, and Huldah the prophetess read the book. And if she would have had to read the whole Torah, it would have taken like more than 15 hours. So it's not likely that this book was the, the entire Torah. Josiah is the only king. Well, I need to pack up here and talk a little bit about Huldah. After she saw the book, she prophesied disaster upon Jerusalem and the inhabitants because they had forsaken God and worshipped other gods. But she said that, that the king, Josiah, would not live to see this disaster because he had been penitent and humbled. So eventually Jerusalem and Judah would be destroyed, but not during the reign of Josiah. Josiah is the only king of Judah to fulfill the threefold injunction of Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So in in Deuteronomy it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then it describes Josiah that very same way. It says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. 
we can contrast the reaction of Josiah to the word of the Lord with the reaction of his son, Jehoiakim. So, so both were presented with the words of the book of the law, the words of the Lord. They were presented with the words of the Lord in writing. When these words of the Lord were presented to Josiah, he tore his clothes. When Jehoiakim was presented with the scroll, he tore the scroll. Josiah responded by burning the pagan items, but instead Jehoiakim burned the scroll. In Josiah's case, hearing leads to repentance, but in Jehoiakim's case, hearing leads to indifference. And isn't that the way it often is when people are presented with the gospel? Either they embrace it gladly or they get mad. They become angry. That you would dare to, as they say, cram religion down their throat. Actually, all you're doing is presenting them with a choice. You're not cramming anything down their throat. They're the ones that have to make the decision. So Josiah takes his place among the incomparables. There are several times in scripture when there is this incomparable formula. Like, no one before him was like this. No one after him was like this. So Moses was an incomparable prophet. There was never a prophet like him before or after. Solomon was an incomparable wise man. Hezekiah was an incomparable man of trust. The Hebrew word for trust or rely is used more frequently when it's talking about Hezekiah than than elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's used very sparingly elsewhere in the Old Testament, but with Hezekiah, the passage about him is used quite often. So he was an incomparable man of trust. Josiah was an incomparable reformer. So there's no king like him or after him who tried to reform Israel like he did. Excuse me, reform Judah. Although he did have some uh, two things that he uh, applied to Judah as well, to Israel as well. Yahweh is an incomparable God And Jesus is an incomparable savior. Even though Josiah was a very good king, he met with an untimely death. One commentator talked about how godliness is no guarantee that you won't do foolish things. (laughs) And Josiah did a foolish thing. The the pharaoh of Egypt was on his way up to fight with Assyria. And they they eventually met at a place called Carchemish up here. And Carchemish is a very important battle in history, but the battle itself is not described in the Bible. But the pharaoh of Egypt was on his way up there to fight in this battle. But on the way to the battle, Josiah took it upon himself to go fight against the pharaoh. 
Here's another map of this. So the Pharaoh of Egypt is on his way up to, to fight against Assyria. And Josiah down here in Jerusalem comes over here and meets him at Megiddo. And there's a battle there. The Pharaoh says, don't, don't mess with me. You'll just get hurt. I don't have a quarrel with you. I'm just on my way to fight this battle. But Josiah wouldn't hear of it. He wanted to, to fight the Pharaoh. So he fought the Pharaoh, and that's where he was killed. And the Pharaoh, even though he was a pagan ruler, he did have a message for Josiah from God. But apparently Josiah didn't believe that, that God could speak through a, a pagan ruler. During the latter part of the period of the kings, Assyria is expanding, becoming more powerful. So you can see how their, their territory expanded to the north and to the west and to the south. At, at this time, uh, Assyria was even dominant over Babylon. And of course, they eventually came down here to Syria and Israel. First of all, Assyria captured some of the territory of Israel. They took away Gilead, all of this part of Israel, east of the Jordan River, and they took the, the northern part, the area of Galilee up here. So Israel was just reduced to this tiny area. And eventually, Assyria did capture the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So the inhabitants of, of Israel were uh, deported all the way over here to the eastern end of the Assyrian Empire. And then other people, Gentiles, were moved in. That was the policy of the Assyrians. They would, they would conquer a people, move them out of their land, and then move another people into their land. So they would shuffle people around as they conquered. So once again, here's where Israel was taken all the way over here to Medea, beyond the Tigris and Euphrates River. Here's the Tigris and Euphrates, they were taken beyond that. And then pagan peoples from this area were brought into Samaria, the kingdom of the capital of Israel. And these pagan peoples mixed with a few Israelites became the Samaritans that we read about in the New Testament. And after Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, then they headed on south to try to capture Judah. Now, once again, the pharaoh from Egypt was coming up here to fight against Assyria, so they had to break off and, and go fight him. But a portion of their soldiers went over to Jerusalem, and they tried to intimidate the inhabitants of Jerusalem into surrendering, but Hezekiah, the king at the time, prayed to the Lord and sought 
the Lord's help, and of course the, the Lord performed a great miracle. He, he killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So that was the end of their attempts to try to conquer Judah. But there is another empire rising, Babylon, Babylon, Babylonian Empire. They eventually conquered Assyria and absorbed that. So then they, they became the rising dominant power. You can see why the nations over here, like Assyria and Babylon, they had to go up and around to get to Israel because it just wasn't feasible to go across, straight across here because there was a formidable desert and that was just no place to, to try to march an army across. So they, they always went around and came from the north. So Babylon attacks Jerusalem. They came from the north. They came down through Megiddo. That was one of the, that was the main pass through the the Carmel, Carmel Ridge here. They came down here and then they came from the south to Jerusalem. They came through Hebron and they came through Jerusalem. came to Jerusalem. And eventually they did conquer Jerusalem and take away the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. There's another map of how they took exiles from Jerusalem, took them over here to Babylon. This Kibar River here, that's where uh, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, who was a prophet to the exile, that's where he had one of his visions at the Kibar River. This uh, diagram kind of summarizes this whole period of the kings of Israel. So first we have the United Kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, which lasted about 112 years. Then the kingdom was divided in about 930 or 931 BC into the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And remember I said 200 years and 250 years. Well, this is, it's about 209 or 245, which is in the ballpark between the time that the northern kingdom broke off until the time that they were taken into captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom uh, continued for another 100 plus years. Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom. And the captivity of Judah by Babylon took place in three phases. So in 605 BC, that's when Daniel and his friends went into captivity. 597 is when Ezekiel and others went into captivity. And then 586 was the year when Jerusalem and the temple were finally destroyed. And of course, there was a 70-year captivity that had been prophesied. And when we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, starting next week, We'll learn more about that.
Now, things that make you go, hmm. In the book of 2 Kings, when we read about Josiah going to, to fight with Pharaoh Necho, it says in 2 Kings 23 that when Pharaoh Necho met him at Megiddo, he killed him. His servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo, from Megiddo to Jerusalem. But in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, when we read about this incident, it says, and his servants brought him to Jerusalem. There he died. So which is it? Did he die at Megiddo or did he die when they brought him to Jerusalem? Well, this is something that's easily explained because often it's not like you see in the movies. In the movies, oftentimes when a person is shot, they just die instantly and fall down dead. But often it, it doesn't happen that way in real life. Uh, in Vietnam, when enemy soldiers, even though they had been shot multiple times through the heart and lungs, they were still able to run up to 100 yards before they went down. In, in Florida, I think it was in Miami, a few years ago, there was a shootout between some FBI agents and two bank robbers. In the initial seconds of that exchange, both bank robbers were fatally wounded. They had wounds from which they could not recover. They were going to die. But even though he was fatally wounded, one of the bank robbers put up a ferocious fight. He killed or wounded several FBI agents before he went down. So when a person is killed, they don't always die instantly. So a, a better way to, to read Second Kings might be this. The two accounts can be harmonized if one reads fatally injured for killed in Second Kings 23-29 and dying instead of dead in Second Kings 23-30. So even though, though he was fatally wounded at Megiddo, he didn't actually die breathing until he got to Jerusalem. So that's how we can explain that. And so we've gotten through first and second Kings. Next week we'll talk about Ezra. And then following that, Nehemiah. So we've learned about how Israel went into captivity and then now we'll start learning how Israel came out of captivity and how that worked. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have provided a Savior, a Messiah for us to reconcile us to you, to deliver us from sin and death. And we thank you that you have recorded all of this for us so that we can understand the history of salvation and how it came about and how diligent and faithful you have been to reserve the line of David so that we could have this Messiah. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.